Hello everyone, this is Jennifer. And this is Jesus. And we're with the Southwestern Alliance Against Food Insecurity. Thank you for tuning into our podcast. For first-time listeners, we are a UT Southwestern organization run by medical students dedicated to combating food insecurity in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Our podcast covers a wide range of topics in regards to food insecurity, public health, and advocacy. For this podcast episode, we have Dr. Mark Casanova. Dr. Casanova is an internal medicine physician who subspecializes in palliative care. He attended medical school at UT Medical Branch at Galveston, where he also completed his residency and fellowship. In addition to his clinical duties, he also serves as the president of the Dallas County Medical Society and is also on the Public Health Advisory Committee. Thank you so much, Dr. Casanova, for joining us today. Absolutely. So um, as part of this podcast episode, we wanted to address a variety of topics from what is the Dallas County Medical Society, Dr. Casanova's professional journey to how COVID has impacted low-income communities and what the public health response has been. So Dr. Casanova, can you first tell us more about the Dallas County Medical Society and your role as president in the organization? Absolutely. Uh, Dallas County Medical Society was actually established in 1876, uh, making it one of the oldest county medical societies. Uh, We are comprised of just over 8,400 physicians in Dallas County. That includes practicing physicians, some who are in retirement, but also physicians in training, and you yourselves, medical students. Um, We are a very proud organization. Uh, Given our size, we are actually larger than 34 state medical societies, and we are the largest uh, county medical society in the state of Texas, uh, and of course, proud members uh, of the TMA. So your county medical societies, uh, through hierarchy, feed into the Texas uh, Medical Association or your state medical societies. So um, I was... uh, afforded the privilege of becoming the 137th uh, DCMS president uh, this last year in January, and it's been a tumultuous year to say the least. Wow, that's really amazing to hear that so many different um, people in healthcare are involved in the Dallas County Medical Society. Yeah, it's it's really a a remarkable organization, and um, you know, we I'm not sure that referring to us as a professional society really gives us justice. Um, as, as many professional societies um, on the outside, those looking in would see us merely as a, a you know, group of fellow physicians um, who maybe are uh, focused on more academia or maybe research or maybe even just social gatherings. When in fact, the County Medical Society is, is much more than that. Uh, we happen to be a very proactive County Medical Society and have leaned into public health crises, actually dating all the way back to the polio crisis. Uh, we have been involved in more recent years in a series of hurricane uh, evacuations, uh, first starting with Katrina, uh, but also a handful of others that our uh, physicians, uh, physician members have been involved in as well as uh, a regrettable series of infectious disease occurrences that <laughs> seem to have a, a, a predilection either for our nation or for North Texas, and that includes West Nile, Ebola, and of course now COVID-19. So it's a medical society that given its robust nature, uh, its broad membership range, uh, its active committees uh, that are focused on everything from the spectrum of 
antimicrobial stewardship, infectious diseases, community emergency response, women in medicine, young physicians, employed physicians, you name it. Uh, we have members and uh, activities that uh, make us leaders in medicine and also just an innate, I think, servicehood, uh, servant-mindedness, I should say, in, in Dallas County uh, that positions us well to respond to uh, crises when they occur and even indolent crises that face us. And I think that's, you know, one of uh, y'all's focus and hats off to y'all uh, as, as medical students and, and young physicians who are really looking at the broad impact of the health of our society uh, as a whole. So you mentioned, uh, Dr. Casanova, that uh, the uh, Dallas County Medical Society is involved in public health. So can you give us a little bit of some of the background in the role of the public Public Health Advisory Committee and your role in this committee? So, yeah, so just a little bit of global background in terms of Dallas County Medical Society and interaction and intersection with, with public health in general. I think much of it relates to what I've mentioned before, individual physicians who um, are members and have uh, their individual interests and or skill set in public health and uh, infectious diseases, but then also a longstanding close relationship uh, that has really been uh, fostered and blossomed in the last um, several years with the uh, health department here in Dallas, Dallas County Health and Human Services. Uh, many of their physician members also being Dallas County uh, physician members and even some past presidents who have been uh, the, the health officers for the County of Dallas. So we've had a longstanding uh, relationship. My own personal journey uh, and into the realm of public health uh, does not come from a health, public health perspective per se, but actually wearing the hats as an internist, palliative care physician, and a clinical ethics consultant. When back in 2007 range, um, I became involved in efforts with um, committees, a variety of committees that have morphed over the years in Dallas County Medical Society and even broader, uh, that really focused on pandemic preparedness. What would we do um, if, uh, if uh, uh, a healthcare crisis, a pandemic similar to SARS at that time uh, were to strike North Texas, would we be prepared? Uh, would our physician colleagues be prepared? And, and what, what did that preparation look like? We realized early on that that coordination and preparation couldn't just live within the houses of hospitals or with the, within the walls of hospitals. It couldn't just live within the County Medical Society in isolation. And it also couldn't just live within uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, the, the County Health Department. There needed to be collaboration. So these efforts actually date back quite some time. And, and ha I had the privilege um, at that time as being uh, on a variety of committees and, and board member uh, of the County Medical Society at those times. Fast forward to 2020 um, and, and COVID-19, and our efforts uh, were reinvigorated. Um, we, we really uh, just made the simple phone calls, got our committees back together. And then within the county of Dallas, um, uh, with uh, leadership by uh, Judge Jenkins, uh, our county uh, judge, and Dr. Philip Wong, our director of health and human services here in Dallas, called upon a, a smaller group of us uh, to establish a public health subcommittee. And so our focus in that committee has been uh, advice and counsel uh, to, to the county, um, as well as to a variety of other public health officials, uh, 
it led to the formation and the evolution of the North Texas County Medical Society Coalition. Uh, that is a coalition between Dallas, Denton, Tarrant, Collin, and Grayson. Understanding and acknowledging that infectious diseases don't stop at county boundaries. And uh, we wanted to ensure that our public health subcommittee efforts were not uh, just staying isolated within one county, we could share ideas um, and, and provide guidance to each other. So it's, it's been really a remarkable dynamic um, subcommittee. Um, you know, one of the beauties of, of involvement in, in uh, organized medicine is the privilege of meeting colleagues that you wouldn't meet um, otherwise. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, uh, I'm a practicing physician at Baylor University Medical Center and have been there since I did my training in internal medicine. So yeah. I just celebrated 20 years there. And without my involvement in DCMS, I wouldn't have the privilege to meet uh, remarkable colleagues and physicians like Dr. Fred Cerise, uh, Dr. Trish Pearl, Dr. Uh, Robert Haley, um, and so many other leaders um, uh, in medicine. So it's really uh, uh, a privilege to serve on that committee and to provide my insight and background, not just as the president of the Dallas County Medical Society, but also members of the task force that spent the last, uh, what, 13 years working on the what-if scenarios only one day in uh, January to learn that those what-if scenarios were facing us. Um, so you just kind of talked a little bit about how you got involved with the Dallas County Medical Society Public Health and then a little bit about your professional journey. Um, but I was wondering if you wanted to just add a little bit more to that or if you just wanted to go to the next question. Well, I can, I can add to the very beginning of my involvement in Dallas County Medical Society and, and my encouragement to, to your listeners and, and for your listeners who are, who are medical students or residents, um, it can start very, very simply. Um, for me, it was, uh, I believe it was my first year in practice. Uh, I was privileged to have a, a mentor, um, as, as many of us do, uh, Dr. Robert Fine, and uh, I had joined his internal medicine practice. I trained under Dr. Fine in residency, and, and uh, one day he uh, was getting ready to head out of work into a meeting and said, hey, do you want to join me uh, going to a Dallas County uh, meeting? It's a subcommittee looking at uh, uh, preparedness planning, and I said, sure, why not? I had nothing going on this evening. Um, and it was as simple as that. That was my introduction. Years later, I was um, elected as an at-large member uh, to the board of, of directors for the Dallas County Medical Society. I've served uh, two separate stints on the board of directors as an at-large member, um, eventually serving as or, or uh, selected to the uh, board of counselors, uh, served as a chair of that, and then began uh, a journey back on the board uh, a few years later, as initially secretary treasurer, president-elect, this year president, and last year, uh, I'm sorry, next year, I'll finish my uh, journey as uh, immediate past president. So, you know, I, I think a lot of um, colleagues and, and, and young colleagues will sometimes ask, well, how do you get involved? I mean, it's as simple as showing up. It really is. It's as simple as knowing somebody who is involved and saying, hey, um, I'm interested. And for me, I didn't really walk into it with a specific niche area. I didn't get involved saying, well, this is going to be my forte and this is what I'm really focused on. I do have a special interest as it relates to notions of social and distributive justice and, and, um, and, and ethical issues, which is you know where Dr. Fine and I 
found our, our place in this, in this space, if you will. Um, but you don't really even need to have a specific interest. You may just have an open-mindedness earlier in your career and saying, I want to kind of be introduced to this and see where it plays out. Same holds true for involvement in the Texas Medical Association, the TMA. Um, it can also hold true for individual subspecialty um, organizations. So uh, for those who go on to become pediatricians, family medicine docs, internist surgeons, um, there's ample opportunity. So really, at the end of the day, it's just stepping forward, letting, letting a, uh, somebody know, hey, I'm interested. Uh, there is plenty of work to do. We are always looking for uh, eager, interested physicians. Um, and, you know, it's not for me. I fell into it at a relatively, you know, early stage of my career, year one, year two, uh, out, of, um, out of training. But we have colleagues who fall into it, you know, year 20. Um, into practice. So uh, the point is, it's never too early, it's never too late. Well, that's definitely reassuring, just given the fact that a lot of us who are listening in this podcast, um, we have an interest in sort of incorporating public health and advocacy um, in our professional careers. So um, given the fact um, that you are um, involved in any mentoring uh, for students or even at the resident level, Yes. So at Baylor, um, we uh, have students from te- our sister uh, students from Texas A&M Medical the, um, and the course director for a program they have there uh, called HEAL, um, Human, uh, I'm sorry, Humanism, Ethics, Altruism, and Leadership. So as the name implies, really kind of <laughs> a lot of the focuses of, of professionalism and organized medicine that we, we look to uphold. Um, I also regularly lecture and teach uh, our residents, not just internal medicine, surgery, OB-GYN, um, and then also um, uh, have uh, residents who rotate with us, as well as some of our fellows uh, will do palliative care rotations with us. So I, I do enjoy um, that ability. You know, a lot of us, uh, uh, and I don't think I'm speaking for uh uh, any one in particular group of physicians, sometimes we get stretched thin. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll, you'll find as you're growing through your career that there's a lot of things you enjoy and a lot of things that call you. And sometimes, you, you know, it's just that uh, work-life balance and figuring out, okay, where, where, can, I, uh, where can I focus my efforts? Um, but no, I, yeah, I do enjoy uh, uh, partaking in that. You know, the, the TMA, when we have our uh, regularly scheduled meetings, um, There are very active um, student and uh, resident and young physician uh, chapters that we have the privilege of of working with. So, yeah, Uh, if any, and and having said that, if any of the listeners are thinking about getting a little bit more involved or wanting to know a little bit more about um, organized medicine, involvement in Dallas County Medical Society, or just other aspects, um, feel free to reach out to me. So it is 2020, which has most definitely been a challenging year for various reasons, um, most significantly the COVID-19 or coronavirus pandemic. So one of the topics we wanted to address during this episode was the pandemic. So specifically how it has impacted the Dallas community and how professionals such as yourself and medical societies, such as the Dallas County Medical Society has responded to the evolving and changing community 
um, needs during the, these times. So as an organization that targets food insecurity, um, we're very much curious if you've had any personal interactions with patients or community members related to food insecurity, hunger, and or food access since the start of COVID. So um, regrettably, yes, yes, and yes. And actually not all of those are regrettable. One is positive and I'll, I'll I'll specify which one is that. Um, let's knock out the regrettables first. Um, certainly, I, I've seen uh, patients and have had interactions where um, they are struggling on all fronts. Um, I have actually a mixed practice of both general internal medicine and palliative care patients. Um, speaking of having learners with me, I had a, a APP student, uh, advanced practice uh, nurse student who was with me uh, two weeks ago doing a rotation. And what she bore witness to was every single patient that day spontaneously, unsolicited, uh, verbalizing, Dr. Casanova, I'm struggling. And the vast majority of those were affirmations of struggling emotionally, uh, spiritually, psychologically. Some would just come out and say, I think I'm depressed. Um, I don't know what anxiety is, but I think I have it now. Um, and, then, and then even you know, moving beyond that and exploring what their lives were, were like at this moment in time, some did reference you know, just global financial insecurities, which of course impact their family, um, their housing, um, putting food on the table uh, and the like. So we, we have certainly seen that. Um, it, it, the, the one I referenced that there was a, a glimmer of hope, um, and, and I think this glimmer of hope is, is only to say there's hope for the future, and this is where we're really going to be looking to your listeners, you know, young uh, physicians in training and, and coming out of training in the coming years. There has been credit to uh, many leaders, business leaders, uh, public leaders, uh, nonprofits, as well as the medical community to include Parkland and the Dallas County Medical Society, as well as the Department of Health and Human Services, the County Health Department, looking at pre-COVID, by the way, food insecurity issues. Because uh, we know that food insecurity and in, in some instances, just you know, food deserts in and around Dallas County can affect health through a variety of social determinants of health. Those are, you know, pretty pretty well established, um, and and I would contend uh, not very arguable. Um, they're they're real, and so pre-COVID, uh, there were there have been uh, meetings and exploration of how does the business community, uh, public leaders, uh, the health community come together and address this in a meaningful way. And, you know, it's, it's not as simple as just saying, okay, well, you know, let's just fund a lot of money to food banks and help support people that way. It needs to be a, a much deeper dive. One needs a better understanding of the problem itself. But then also while we're studying the problem, invest in, in public health measures. And, you know, public health measures aren't always as simple as vaccinations for little kids right? Or vaccinations for adults for that matter. The public health measures could be, you know, who and under what auspice do we set up an actual grocery store in a certain zip code um, that is a food desert where those individuals um, only options for food are, um, you know, fast food that is inherently less expensive, but inherently very unhealthy. Uh, that was pre-COVID, right? That was before the loss 
of jobs suffered by many individuals who are already living on the brink. Um, and so certainly we've seen that exacerbated and, and uh, you know, even without the COVID-19 pandemic was an issue that we were working on. Um, uh, I have hope and faith that many of the issues that I emphasize we were working on won't get side tabled forever and we can actually congruently address these because regrettably they were brought to bear. Um, that's one thing about this pandemic. It has, it has shown us uh, blaringly uh, the, the deficiencies and the inequities and um, the struggles that live just under the surface that uh, many may have denied, not out of denial, but just out of unawareness. Well, we're all aware now, and it's, and it's there, and it's clear, um, and it's even affected those uh, of our fellow citizens who weren't historically necessarily on the brink day-to-day, uh, -day, uh, even some of those who, who were, you know, uh, living a middle-class life and have, you know, lost their job and have kids to support and so on and so forth. So um, it, it is... Um, a daunting task, but one that uh, we're committed to addressing. And, and I think it will be one of those silver linings that I hope will come out of the COVID pandemic is accelerating um, the, the addressing of many of the struggles um, that we have faced here in North Texas, but, but really, frankly, everywhere. And then also, so how has food insecurity, hunger, food access, affected healthcare access, and ability of patients to participate in healthcare on a larger community level scale. Um, if you could just like elaborate a little bit more on that. Well, I think, you know, I, I'm, I, how I would correlate food insecurity and struggles with access to struggles with healthcare. I don't think that they are, it's necessarily causal, but it's strongly correlated. Meaning that I don't see that individuals who are having one of the most fundamental basic struggles, eating, right? Uh, putting, putting some food, any food, uh, ideally healthy food on the table for they and their family. Um, struggling in that capacity doesn't, in my opinion, cause or lead to difficulty in accessing healthcare. It's instead, it's part of the package deal. If you can't meet your basic needs, chance that um, you are having a broad breadth of financial and social difficulties to include health insurance, to include transportation, to include even if you had some type of healthcare coverage, be that Medicaid or, or Medicare, having the means to actually get to the physician's office or a doctor's office or a clinic, having a clinic that accepts your Medicare replacement plan. Um, so, you know, it goes back to that underpinning theme of social determinants of health and, and these things that track together. So you show me a hungry person uh, and their family who's not sure where next month's rent is going to be, or maybe they're already two months behind rent, COVID or non-COVID, and I'll show you a family that is having access issues to health care. And at the end of the day, if you can't get in the door, you're going to have detrimental effects to health. Okay. Um, also, as, again, as you look at the, the social determinants of health, if you're having those same difficulties, there's an extraordinarily strong correlation with just innate factors of diet, health, uh, psychological, you know, 
uh, emotional welfare that portends greater poorer health, right? Higher propensity for diabetes, uh, hypertension, heart disease, uh, smoking, um, unhealthy diets. Uh, so that they're all correlated and tied in together. So even if that individual has access, they're then dealing with sort of ingrained, uh, almost learned um, health behaviors that, that take an immense amount of coaching and motivation to, to unlearn and to try to right that ship as best as we can, depending on how far along the journey we meet the individual. Yeah, I think that's actually a really important point that you bring up and that, you know, people might not always think about. Yeah, it's, it's, um, and, and, you know, truth be told, when I, when I say, w earlier when I referenced the social determinants of health, in my opinion, are, are, are no longer arguable. Uh, the reason I specifically made that statement is, is because they have been argued for a while. Um, this notion that social determinants of health have an impact, what are they, are they real, what do we make of this? I think the body of knowledge is, is robust and actually ever-growing. Now comes the difficult part. What do we do about it, right? What, what actions do we take? How do we remedy this? Um, from our perspective as physicians and medical students, let's take another analogy, hypertension, okay? Hypertension has been around for a long time, right? It's been a condition of the human body. Um, and uh, Roosevelt, um, President Roosevelt at the uh, meeting with Stalin and um, Churchill, Stalin in his diaries uh, basically accused Roosevelt of being a, you know, a lazy American slob. Well, um, his impression was based on the fact that Roosevelt would periodically fall asleep during meetings. Um, well, Roosevelt wasn't falling asleep. Roosevelt's uh, blood pressure was uh, 200s over 100s. So he had marked uncontrolled hypertension. So you know, we've known about certain medical conditions for, for, for many, many years, many, many decades, sometimes hundreds of years, before we've had effective therapeutics. So the analogy is we know about social determinants of health now. We know it's there. We know what it is. We know what it looks like when we see it. What's the treatment? And how long will it take for us to come up with a viable treatment? Now we have you know, medications coming out of our ears that control hypertension. What's going to be the medication? What's going to be the treatment for you know, social determinants of health that are negatively impacted? Because remember, there's converse social determinants of health too, right? There's social determinants of health that pretend favor, very favorable outcomes. There's social determinants of health that based on one zip code in Jessica County of Dallas with a four-mile distance as a crow flies can pretend up to a 30-year difference in life expectancy. Mm -hmm. What's the treatment of that? That's, that's the million-dollar question. Probably about the $3 billion question, I'm sure. <laughs> And then given, um, speaking of social determinants of disease, one of the components is sort of the misdistribution of resources. So early on in the pandemic in this country, we saw uh, various uh, shortages of different kinds of resources like um, toiletries, like toilet paper, um, water, um, and even food. For instance, um, early on, there were fears that um, elderly individuals would not have access to food and water uh, when people began hoarding uh, 
stores of it during the early stages of the pandemic. So um, we even saw some stores sort of um, save and sp save some specific amount of times where only elderly individuals could uh, shop during to combat this. Like so, in the early mo morning, they would um, have only el elderly individuals come on in the stores. Um, so looking at the pandemic right now, um, are there any specific communities or populations that are particularly impacted in regards to food access? You know, I, I'm not sure there are particular populations that are impacted to food access above and beyond baseline impacts, above and beyond baseline struggles that existed pre-COVID. I think what we see is that COVID has simply intensified everything. So if you already at baseline had difficulty uh, because maybe you're an elder uh, individual living alone, or maybe it's just your spouse, and maybe y'all had difficulty driving or transportation to the grocery store. Well, we've seen those aspects amplified. Maybe you were dependent on your adult son. Uh, maybe your adult son is undergoing cancer treatment. Who gets that food for you now? Do you risk going to the store? How do you get to the store? So um, I, I don't believe that, that we've seen clear evidence that it's disproportionately made uh you know uh, created new problems i think it's just amplified um existing problems and certainly speaks to you know one of one of those you know um principles that we hold dear in in, in medical ethics of distributive or societal justice mm -hmm. simply asking how do we care for each other and how do we care for each other equitably you know, some may contend that, oh, well, this topic or that topic isn't really within the lane of medicine, right? And everybody should stay in their lane. Well, I think how we look at the global health, not just within a hospital setting or a doctor's office, but how we look at the global health of our community is totally in our lane. That is who and what we are as physicians. And so looking at those things and addressing them to the best of our abilities, I think is incumbent upon us. Um, in terms of have we seen certain populations disproportionately impacted from COVID? The answer is yes. Via food insecurity, not necessarily, but interestingly, via food, yes. What do I mean? Meatpacking plants or other first line or frontline um, sort of core infrastructure industries that may have a disproportionate Hispanic and or minority workforce. So uh, the meatpacking industry is, is one blaring example, and that sure as heck has not been uh, relegated to just North Texas or to Texas, but across the nation. Um, so, so maybe not downstream food access issues, but food nonetheless, uh, and, and or working in grocery stores and, and having a, um, you know, those, those populations um, that may be more disproportionate Hispanic uh, or African-American or other minority uh, construction workers. And, and that's certainly what we've seen bear out in, uh, in some of the individuals, at least in the early stages who were getting sick and hospitalized. Now we're seeing a difference. Now it's frankly, seemingly all comers. Uh, but certainly we did see that impact in the, in the early months of the pandemic.